Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. The facts on the ground are undeniable. The U.S. is out. The Taliban is back in. The end was ugly. And there were plenty of ugly spots along the way. So we're all doing what-ifs. And here's ours. What would the off-ramp have looked like? And did we ever at least have our turn signal on? Joining us today is a guy who was in the room. Former diplomat Frank Ruggiero dealt directly with the Taliban, as well as managing U.S. relations with Pakistan and Afghanistan. And that's between the years 2010-2012. Hillary Clinton gave him the State Department's Distinguished Honor Award. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Can you just describe your role and the situation while you were doing it? Sure. I had two roles related to Afghanistan. The the first one was I was the senior U.S. civilian in southern Afghanistan from the summer of 2009 through the summer of 2010. So that's when the uh, Obama administration surged military forces into the south, primarily Helmand and Kandahar provinces, to, to initiate a counterinsurgency strategy. I left that job and came back and was Richard Holbrook, senior deputy in the summer of 2010. He passed away in December of 10. So I was the acting special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan for a few weeks, I think a month or so. And then I did that job for about two years. And then I left the State Department. What's your view, in a nutshell, of when this should have ended? Were you there when it should have or could have ended? I always thought that we should have used the force we had on the ground when we surged military forces to to seek a political settlement to the conflict. So use that force to negotiate. And if you look at Secretary Clinton's speech she gave at the Asia Society in early 2011, she laid out very clearly how the United States was going to fight and talk to the Taliban at the same time. And the idea was that of that was to you know, get them to break ties with al-Qaeda in a public way, because that was our core objective in Afghanistan, and then also to begin a, a process where you get a negotiated settlement between the Afghan government and the Taliban. So that's what we were working on all throughout 10 and 11 and a little bit into 12, but it kind of fell apart in 12. Why? Why did it fall apart in 12? 
I think there was certainly on the Afghan side, the Afghan government, there was resistance to the talks. We had had conversations with the most senior levels of the Afghan government, keeping them informed uh, of what we were doing by initiating a channel with the Taliban. Some of them encouraged continued negotiations. Some of them were very hesitant. But you know, specifically, we were talking to informing President Karzai, keeping him up to date. And I think that there was a bond conference in December of 2011. And at that conference, Karzai just walked away from the, the talks. And at that point, it was there was a real push on to make these Afghan-led. The Afghan government was going to lead these talks, and the Taliban just wouldn't go for that. That's not what they. That's not how they wanted to negotiate an end of the conflict. So we hit loggerheads, and then I left the government in twelve. So I'm not sure. I wasn't privy to the discussions after that. So the Taliban was kind of all or nothing. Right. We will rerule the country. There's no there's no kind of joint rule here possible. There were no preconditions to the conversations. Okay. We were trying to do was initiate a dialogue with, you know, and the, and the way you would initiate a dialogue, you have to have the Taliban have a place where they could have negotiations. So they were going to set up a political office in Qatar. Uh, Qatar was a, a party to the nego- party to the talks. They helped host the talks, and that's where the Taliban political office eventually was established. So that there were no preconditions on either side. It was to begin a dialogue to think about what is the end of this conflict. So, what do you think the Taliban would have taken? Do you have any thoughts about like what their idea of a negotiated settlement would have been? You know, I don't know the answer to that. We we didn't get that far down the track of what their broad parameters were for what they were seeking in a in a negotiation. I mean, we were focused on how do you begin a process where one, we get just met vis-a-vis Al-Qaeda, got to sit down together with the United States in the room to negotiate a settlement. I mean, there were some there were some thoughts about at that time, you know, clearly events turned out differently. They got much more than well, they got everything. You know, there, there was some internal thinking, I remember, on the team about, you know, do they want, do they want, would there be an interim government, the power sharing arrangement? Would there be, would they take control in certain provinces in the South only? Would they be able to, you know, would they want certain ministries? Those were all conversations that the U.S. team was having about, you know, what would a negotiation look like once we finally got to it? So we were all focused on a negotiation started, and that's where we, we, we didn't get past that hurdle. So sort of deciding what the table would look like before everybody sat down around it? That's right. Who would be in the room? Who would be in the room? And, and you know, if you look at peace negotiations, it's often, you know, who's going to be in the room? Look at the Vietnam negotiations. Who's sitting where? So what's your opinion of how this was handled, this, this current end to the war and the evacuation? You know, I, I've always made, remained focused on the, the 20 years leading up to where we are versus the last 20 days. I don't think anyone, and I haven't seen intelligence in, in you know a long time on this topic, I don't think anyone would have imagined that the Afghan government would have collapsed so completely, so quickly. Now, the idea that the president of the country, shot fired in Kabul, would get on an airplane and, and, and depart, I think was beyond the realm of anyone's uh, what would happen. I think most people probably thought there'll be a period of fighting after the Americans withdraw. The Afghan government will be able to hold on for a period of time. The most optimistic scenarios, maybe a year. I don't think anyone thought they are going to, we spent a hundred billion dollars on Afghan national security forces and they were routed in the, in the North first, then in the South. 
and then gave up Kabul without a fight. I don't think anyone anticipated that. And then the, the rest flows from that. I mean, how do you evacuate Americans then with the Taliban controlling the air? I just want to push back on that just a little bit because I feel like talking to every single person I knew that came back from Afghanistan, reading the Special Inspector General of Afghan Reconstruction reports, especially about the Afghan National Army, maybe this is in hindsight, but I feel like the writing was on the wall there in a lot of ways. I mean, my colleagues from Vice come back. They make these documentaries about what it's like to hang out with the Afghan National Army. And there are, especially in the like special operations forces equivalents in the Afghan National Army's good soldiers, but there were also a lot of people, especially in the North, sitting around, smoking hash, not really doing anything. So I just it that like it I, I struggle with, with sorry, go ahead. I don't disagree with you. That was always my view, that they were very much overrated on what they could achieve and what was what was stated about them and their capabilities was never proven on the battlefield. But I think the consensus in the U.S. government was that they're going to hold on for a period of time. Another aspect, you mentioned Ghani just gone up and left. And so the question I have is, didn't we know him a little bit better I mean, shouldn't we have had some clue about who this guy was? I'd met Ashraf a few times in my capacity as the deputy special representative. He was not in power at that point. So that I can't, you know, who in the U.S. government knew him or how closely they knew him because he didn't go, come into power until after I was out of the government. Again, I met him in a capacity as a, you know, for, I think he was a former World Bank official, wasn't he? Or I forget his, his background. Um, but he was considered an eminent, you know, eminent Afghan. And he'd come back to enter the fray of Afghan politics. Well said. So was there, inside the Obama administration, was there an effort to get out? Were there factions that actually thought it was time to go? Yeah, I think the whole debate around the beginning of negotiation with the Taliban was an attempt to to, to end the conflict with the negotiated settlement. So you, again, you go back to Secretary Clinton, you know, what she wrote, gave a speech in, in, I think it was February of 11, the Asian Society was the culmination of the U.S. government saying, we are going to initiate a political process to end this conflict. Not everyone was on the same page. I mean, I think there were always people in the military, DOD, that thought that building up this ANSF was going to, you know, allow them to get the Taliban to, the two words that were always bantered around were reconciliation versus reintegration. So the, the people that believed in a political settlement or seeking a political settlement always believed there had to be reconciliation with the Taliban. There was going to be some type of an arrangement where the Taliban were accommodated in terms of power in the government. Reintegration was basically they were going to throw up their hands and, and be reabsorbed into Afghan society as, you know, I don't know, police officer or something. I think the view of the people on recon- side of reconciliation just didn't think the reintegration story was even feasible. That th- there was nothing on the battlefield that would make you believe that the fight was going in the direction that the Taliban felt that you know they had to give up. Which events certainly have, have bore that out. I have heard speaking of the factional stuff, and this may not be a question that you have an answer to. That even then, as vice president. Biden was against the surge and kind of wanted wanted us pulled out back then. 
Is that true? You know, I know the vice president has much less power and is much less involved than sometimes people think that he is, but I'm, I'm curious if you right. have any insight. I mean, my recollection of discussions around that time were that the vice president, and I think it's public record, was, was opposed to the surge, always viewed our counterterrorism objectives as the primary objectives in Afghanistan and, and would have preferred to get out. Going all the way back to Bush, and I'm not saying that you were working in this field then, but one thing that's always struck me is, you know, we now talk about the mission was over once Al-Qaeda was on the run or if we got the Taliban away from Al-Qaeda, pried them apart. But I really remember the propaganda at the time we were going in that we were also going to rescue the women of Afghanistan. And, you know, I mean, I'm p- taking it to an extreme, but that the, the right. Taliban itself was a force for evil and that it was important to keep them out. But you're you're actually talking about a government that was much more pragmatic than than what the PR was saying. Is that right? Certainly by 10 and 11. So you go through the surge, the Obama surge. And I think that people realized that. You know, if you if you look back at after the American forces went into Marja and Helmand, that was kind of the the beginning of this the the surges surge forces were going to do. And I remember Stan McChrystal was, was you know there was a, a quote from him about bleeding Marja or something like that. But it was basically that there weren't enough forces to do this. That the military surge was was probably not going to get the results that that people wanted. So at that point, people started to say, "How do we?" How do we either take advantage of the forces we have on the ground to get a political settlement or just simply get a political settlement? And, and but yes, there was always the tension about, I mean, a counterinsurgency strategy kind of built on those folks in the government that, that really wanted to see a new Afghanistan. And I don't think that tension was ever really settled. There are always those who wanted to, to, to remain engaged and, and, and make Afghanistan something. Remember, we have a long discussion about something called the Kabul Bank. And this was a question about what is corruption in Afghanistan and what can we do about it? And, you know, I remember sitting around the, uh, you know, the, the, the White House Situation Room, the uh, place where we had National Security Council meetings, and talking about, well, what do we do about this? And, you know, half of the room was saying, this is just a problem that's too big. What, are we, what, what can we really do about this question? And how much nation building are we really going to get into here? And, and is that effort really going to pan out. Why do you think this went on for 20 years? I think as long as as bin Laden was out there, that there was going to be an effort to make sure that Afghanistan was never used again to launch attacks on the West. The question for me has always come down to after the death of bin Laden, how did it go on for another decade? And I think with the death of bin Laden, the, the pivot that was occurring already in the government to seek a negotiated settlement, really gained steam. And there was a lot of progress, I thought, in the summer of after Bin Laden was killed in May of 11, through the bond process in 2000, December of 2011. There was a lot of progress. You know, people, there, there were some parts of the government that weren't as interested in this as those of us who were seeking reconciliation. But my, my question has always been, you know, how did, it, how did it go on so long after we achieved our core objective? And I think that's what President Biden has been saying. That, you know, we achieved our core objective against Al-Qaeda, and we continued on with basically a nation-building strategy for a decade that ended up where we are. I just think that... All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We will be right back after this. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, Angry Planet listeners, thank you so much for waiting. We are back on. What was told to the public was much more along the lines of nation building anyway. I, I just I just keep thinking about you know, the talk about schools for women and bridges and tunnels and all of the other stuff that we were supposed to be doing. I also think it depends on on which part of the government was talking to the public at what time, because it changed. And it very much depended on if it was a military source or if it was a diplomatic source, if it was a civilian government source. They're all saying different things at different times, I feel. But, and I've, I've said this repeatedly on this show, we weren't really paying attention. Most Americans had no idea what was going on there and didn't care to know. Yeah, to look at the front page of the major publications now, and it's a, certainly a, a story, but nothing on Afghanistan for a decade. And all of a sudden, this flurry of the entire front page of major publications just dedicated to Afghanistan. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how quickly that... I, I think you're right, though. I think it depends on, on who you were talking to. Because if you look back at the, President Obama, you know, he was very... You know, he did the surge and then he was prepared to announce the withdrawal of American forces, cut the number of forces in the country, declared the surge over, declared the combat mission over. At the same time, you're probably talking to people that were focused on Afghan women's issues on, you know, we were going to stay engaged. We were going to make that a priority. I, I think you just had people talking not past each other, but from their own perspective of what the conflict was. And, and those don't align when you think of it in the historical context. It was also so big, too, right? Because it was like not not just this military component, this huge state building exercise, quite unlike I think almost anything America has ever done before or attempted, right? You know, I would like comparable only I think to the aftermath of World War II, but even then, like the infrastructure of those countries and the culture of those countries, Japan and Germany, was completely different than Afghanistan, right? Yeah, you were trying to build something absolutely from scratch. I mean, you. It, when I came into it in the in the summer of ten, you know, the counterinsurgency strategy was nation building activity really that, that really accelerated. And the idea was, in order to create stability in the South, how do you you know tamp down a resurgent Taliban? 
you know, you have to build up local governance, you have to build up economics, you have to build up the political ties between Kabul and the provinces and the provinces and the districts where the Taliban existed. And then you'd have to build up an Afghan national security force that could take over the security function. In the piece I just wrote, you know, I was in Afghanistan for about three or four months. And there was this debate going on about how many additional troops Obama would send in. And I remember Ambassador Carl Eikenberry, then the U.S. ambassador to Kabul, to Afghanistan, came down south and, you know, asked the basic question, how much of this is sustainable? Because once you put the U.S. forces in, so every district in Afghanistan basically got a battalion of U.S. forces and about 10, 15, 20 civilians. So diplomats, aid workers, agricultural workers, justice workers. And as long as the, the military was there, you could show progress because the, the, the few district government officials you could get from the Afghan side could go out and do their job. You could see some U.S. aid dollars flowing in. And, but the question was, as soon as U.S. forces leave, what does it look like? And my assessment was always that. And, and most of the people that I supervised in the South was that this is all fleeting, that this is, this is you know, as long as the, the battalion remains there of U.S. soldiers, this will sustain itself. But when you pull those soldiers out, the Afghans didn't have the capacity or the will to do it. I- so your average, your average Afghan, do they have, how caught up in this were they? Did, were there people who actually said the U.S. is a good thing? Were there people who said the U.S. is a bad thing? Or were people just sitting there waiting us out? <laughs> I think it depends on which Afghan. If you were involved in the central government and you were um, part of the government that the United States was supporting, I think that it was uh, you wanted the United States to stay. You wanted the, the assistance to continue to flow in. <clears throat> if you were an average farmer in southern Afghanistan, I think you were worried about what's the security situation for you and who could provide you some modicum of justice. And I think that, you know, the, the government from the South was viewed much differently than the government from the North was viewed. So if you were a Northerner looking down in Kabul, you saw, you know, a lot of people that were, you know, from your uh, background. If you were from the South looking up, it was a different story. Can we, I want to talk about your this piece you wrote in the Atlantic Council that came out on September 1st, how to avoid another state building failure after Afghanistan. It's good, but it is also depressing to me in a number of ways. Because I feel like these are the basic things. These four things are like and I don't I don't mean that as a criticism of you so much as a criticism of our nation our our, our nation building efforts in Afghanistan. Like And the whole focus, nation, really. And the whole nation. Number one, focus on achievable objectives. How how did we not have achievable – how did we not know what our achievable objectives were for the past 10 years? It's where, How did we get into this mode where we were just kind of making it up You know, every two years? It felt like the, the mission would kind of change. And again, depending on who you talked to, how did we get to this place? I just think that um, the, the objective shifted over time. It started out as a conflict against al-Qaeda, and then it became we need to set up a government to – make sure that the Taliban doesn't come back. Because I think, I believe a decision was taken early in the conflict. The Taliban was routed. I think that they had put out feelers to figure out how do they come back in? And and the answer was don't. (laughs) There was an op-ed by uh, uh, Harvard professor, Stephen Walt, uh, a few days ago in the Financial Times, where he laid out the 
what I thought was really a, a terrific lesson learned that has to be learned from the Afghanistan conflict. If you're going to have a realistic foreign policy, you have to be able to judge facts for what they are and pivot your actions and your policy according to the fact. I think that, you know, this gets back to setting realistic objectives. You have to be able to say, yes, we've set this objective. Maybe everyone didn't think a coin strategy was the best objective to set, but to be able to analyze it and say, that's not working. I think that's the, the real question about Afghanistan. The lesson to be learned is, in the end, this is Afghanistan. I don't mean to downplay the importance of Afghanistan and global politics, but it's Afghanistan. If you can't judge, you know, the, 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 what's happening with your policy in a realistic way, and you put that in a different context outside of Afghanistan, that's a, that's a, that's a dangerous thing. And so we have to figure out how do we, you know, how are we able to take a critical look at ourselves as we try to implement policies? I also want to look at number two, which is something that's like a personal hobby horse of mine. Increased civilian oversight at the Pentagon. The U.S. military is trained to carry out complex and dangerous missions. It excels at them. The military's optimism that it can achieve difficult tasks is laudable, but that optimism can cause it to extend its reach beyond overall policy objectives. Thus, civilian Pentagon leadership must steer the military towards achievable goals. It does feel to me, you know, having covered this stuff for a while, that the military is pretty disconnected from the American public and from its civilian leadership. How do we get back to a place where they are listening to each other and communicating? I don't know. That's a real challenge. But the you have to have the – and when you're setting policies, the military – and I was trying to capture this in a piece. You know, they, they are given tasks. They're told to take, take a hill. And, and they, they'll do it. And, that, and they're trained to do that. And, and I, I was trying to give them great credit because they do amazing things. Uh, but, but that spirit of we can do what we're tasked to do, I think, has to be tempered at times by, by the policy leadership in the Pentagon, because the State Department can't do that. The White House can do that, but it's a challenge. So that you have to have that civilian leadership of the Pentagon that, that says, we understand the object, objective the military you want to achieve. You know, are you are you getting there? Are you not? And if you're not, let's pivot. But what I saw oftentimes was the, the they became more of a, a support mechanism for the military. Did you ever feel as if military leadership bucked against civilian control, or was was obtuse with its information? They were trying to do what they they thought was the right thing to do. They set out on a policy that they thought would work, and the, the building of the Pentagon then moved out in the direction of trying to achieve those objectives. My my analysis of that is there has to be a way when you see that that's not working to correct and to pivot and go in a different direction. Because what happened in Afghanistan is we didn't pivot and go in a different direction. And we ended up with the Taliban routing the country. And this goes to point four in your piece, I think. Recognize that history is not static. And you kind of talk about the inability of some people on the American side of things to come to terms with people changing or people telling you that they had changed. That, that kind of felt like it feels as if everyone was filtering everything through a 2001 lens. Right, that the Taliban. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there, there certainly in relationship to the Taliban, it was very difficult to get people to to look at them as an entity in 2011 or 2020 
versus an entity in you know the summer of 2001. The 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 views of them are fixed, and it was very hard to change any view of them. So you know we would go negotiate with them and come back with what we thought were interesting developments, and and, and just you know a, a chunk of the government just wouldn't be budged. They just would not be budged by that. Now on the Afghan side, it was pretty obvious that our interests weren't aligned. And, you know, at some point, our interest was to be less involved in Afghanistan, particularly after Al-Qaeda. But if you're going down a counterinsurgency state building strategy, you know, the the people that believe that think that you need to hug the Afghan government even closer. So you need to, you know, make them really believe that you're going to be there for them forever. And so that just clouds people's judgment about, what they really were, what the Afghan government really was. Again, I go back to the, the president of the country getting on a plane and departing without a shot fired in Kabul. How do you explain? He took the money and ran and perhaps understood the country better than the rest of us did. I mean, there's a long history of people doing that, though. I mean, baby Doc Dallier, he got out ahead. Um, didn't at least one of the presidents of Vietnam manage to get out with a... There's this great piece that was written about the last people getting on the helicopter and the senior South Vietnamese officials actually having trouble getting on the helicopters because they were carrying so much gold, <laughs> literally gold bars. I guess that's not the part that surprises me. <laughs> I think he could see the writing on the wall and he went. Yeah. He'd been reading the cigar reports. Sorry. Do you think, so do you, do you, and this is kind of uh a bad question to ask you because I think I know exactly what your answer will be, but do you think America should be engaged in this kind of state building and how do we not screw it up the next time? I think it's very difficult. If you're going to try to use a foreign power to impose, what you're basically doing is using foreign power to impose a government. You can, you can phrase that in any way you want, but I think it, how is it viewed by the local people? And I think, I just think it's very difficult. Here, I, I, I used to describe it to people as follows. They would say, so what, what is it like in southern Afghanistan to try to, you know, create this state that's going to work, you know, for the average Afghan? And I used to say, imagine if there were a bunch of Afghans who didn't speak a word of English and you stuck them in Chicago and you told them to figure out the local politics and come up with a government. You know, how would, how would that go? We're talking about Chicago. It might be an improvement. <laughs> but... Uh, no, I mean, I see what you mean. It does seem impossible. And I guess we're blinded by the American ideals of that we live in a not perfect society, but the, in, it, in its ideal form, we live in the perfect society. And also that we've done it before, right? Yeah, we, you know, we, we, we never, we, we're very bad at using force in a nuanced way. We want total victory. And that's from our World War II experience, right? I mean, we had total victory on two fronts, and we rebuilt the world. You know, it's an amazing achievement by the American soldier and the government. But we've tried to repeat that in in a lot of ways. And I remember having a conversation, actually, with Henry Kissinger. We did an event at the Wilson Center sometime in 11 where we were talking about the political process, the chances of a political process in Afghanistan. And, And at some point, Henry looked over at me and he said, you know, I hope we've learned how to fight and talk. He said, because Americans generally fight, they stop fighting, they decide they don't want to fight anymore, and then they want to go and negotiate a withdrawal. 
And that's kind of what happened in Afghanistan. You know, we, 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 we had the forces on the ground. We could have used them in a, in a political way to foster a negotiation. But, you know, we, we, we're not good at that. That's just not something, again, it goes back to this reconciliation, reintegration question. You're going to win. You're going to force them into reintegrate. And, and you know, the, the facts on the ground just didn't support that. We don't normally have people who've actually met with senior Taliban officials on the show, to be honest. I was wondering if you would share some of your personal impressions. You don't have to use names, although that's always interesting, too. But, I mean, what were these senior officials like? I mean, crass, crude, sophisticated. I mean, any any sort of adjectives you want to hit us with. I'm just curious what these they seem like they're from another planet from sitting where I am. The, the, the gentleman that I met with, his name's out there in the media, is Tayabaga. So I'm not giving up any confidence. That was the, the person that we met with. I don't know what, if, if he's involved in what he's doing now. I, I have no idea. I found him to be uh, genuine. He was actually kind of reserved. We, you know, we, we, were, we were very cautious about who we are talking to. How, how do we know this guy's actually... Because there were a few instances where people tried to begin channels with the Taliban and, and they turned out to be just completely bogus. Uh, I remember there was this instance of, uh, this was in the press, I think, about you know fake Mullah Mansour. There was a guy who was pawning himself off as Mullah Mansour, who eventually was, you know, he was killed. And 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 you know, made his this guy made his way all the way to the, the palace in Kabul. And you know, in the end it was a bust. So we 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 took some pretty significant steps to make sure we were talking the guy we were talking to was who he said he was and represented the the larger Taliban political entity. So I, I found him to be kind of reserved, thoughtful. He, you know, he didn't come into the room kind of throwing Islamic fundamentalism at us. Frank Ruggiero, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us through all this. I appreciate your point of view. And again, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure to be on. That's all for this week. Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, we have a substack at angryplanet.substack.com or angryplanetpod.com, where for a mere $9 a month, you get access to two, count them, two bonus episodes every month. Again, where that is at angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then.